Welcome to the fifth episode of Wyoming Law Pod. Today I'm pleased to have my friend Jack Edwards here with me at the University of Wyoming, both down here helping Professor Duff teach a future class of workman compensation lawyers. Jack is a uh, graduate of the University of Wyoming Law School in 2004. He worked as an associate at Hearst and Applegate, then at Luthien Boyles until 2010 when he started his own firm. Along the way, he had a brief stint with the Lincoln County DA's office and published an article in the, on foreclosure in the Wyoming Law Review. Jack's practice is focused on representing individuals and small businesses and especially injured individuals in both personal injury and work comp setting. He has been a commissioner for the Wyoming State Bar, board member of the Wyoming Trial Lawyers Association, and on the board of trustees of the University of Wyoming Board of Trustees. Jack lives and practices out of Etna, Wyoming with his wife, Lisa, where he is busy growing his practice and his family. Thank you for being here, Jack. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be a guest on your program. Congratulations on the recent birth of your daughter. Uh, how is the Life Balance Balancing Act going with your growing family and your growing law firm? The balance is going well simply because my wife knows how to take the lion's share of the work when it comes to raising an infant. I, I, I'll, I'll admit that... Uh, before we had Piper that I thought, gosh, I'm going to do the equal amount of diapers and equal amount of feedings and equal amounts of getting up at night. But that's just not the case. And um, I've already <laughs> waved the white flag <laughs> and surrendered uh, to uh, the fact that my wife's amazing in, in raising this beautiful child. And uh, so if it wasn't for her help, uh, life would be really out of balance right now. That's great to hear. How is the growing law firm going? It's great. Uh, I just added an associate attorney. His name is Caden Canfield, who um, just amazes me every day at uh, how well he thinks through program uh, through through problems and uh, seems to uh, be really ready to um, get up to full speed being a trial attorney. Between that and your wife, I mean, those are two real blessings that make that life balance possible. In the long run, that's the, that's the idea. Uh, you know, when you're adding staff and bringing people up to speed, uh, there's a bit of a learning curve and a little bit of time that I have to put into uh, switching gears and being more of a mentor type role. So um, ideally, yeah, but uh, but right now it's it's not quite balanced out, uh, but, but I'm not complaining. Well, and that kind of goes to part of the topic of today is both patience and persistence and how they relate to discovery. And just so our listeners know, I mean, we had kind of an acrimonious beginning, which was essentially entirely my fault as a young lawyer, um, I was probably more scared than anything, and that made me hyper-aggressive in our first encounter. And you, of course, followed the rules and obtained a good result for your client, and I learned a lot of lessons from that. But I think the biggest things I learned from you were years later when we'd become friends and we had the chance to work a case together, and I really saw discovery done right. Um, and so the lessons I took away from you were that you had the discipline to start by asking really good questions and really good requests for information. And then you had the patience to wait out the process and then also the persistence um, to go through every step. And I, I, I kind of think of it as the mindset of how to get discovery done right. And you're the one who taught me that. And that's what I'm hoping we can share with our listeners. So the first thing I'd like to talk with you about is when you're looking at interrogatories, how do you create and ask good questions? What's your mental process on that? I've found that when I approach my case uh, more like an investigator uh, rather than an attorney, meaning, uh, well, let me back up and say, I look at it like an investigator from this standpoint. Uh, there are still facts to be learned. There should always still be facts to be learned. At least that should be your mindset. 
but more importantly, there has to be facts that you think occurred that need to be documented. Because you always need to realize that whatever fact you want to put on the record, put in front of a jury or a judge, needs to be supported by foundation and have all those those elementary elements associated with it in order to prove the fact. Otherwise, it didn't occur. So when I, when I approach a case, if I look at myself like the investigator or you even think about the FBI agents you ever thought about those guys I have they you know they go there's two of them and a lot of times they're lawyers or they're accountants and they go out together and they work a case and they ask questions and they gather documents and and so I I tell you this because it seems like when I keep a mindset of of being in the investigative uh, role that I'm much more thorough. So it starts at the very beginning of cases in order to get your discovery off on the right foot. And that is thoroughly interviewing your client and then reviewing every document you can and grabbing every document you can. And in the best case scenario, interview whatever witness you can. Because I found that when, if I go into discovery and it's this uh, fishing expedition type approach where, you know, we just ask all kinds of stuff and we think that maybe if we ask the right question, then uh, opposing counsel will say, geez, you got me. You asked the question for the, the, the document that seals the deal. Uh, rarely, rarely does that occur. But you want to you want to investigate it to where you're reasonably certain that that document exists or that uh, piece of evidence, whether it's testimony or otherwise, exists. Uh, because when you're in front of the judge, um, the speculation and and just a hunch isn't going to carry the day for for the judge. So what I'm kind of hearing is that. In that initial phase, the key, before you even start to write an interrogatory request for production, is you want to learn the questions you need to ask. Absolutely. Uh, the idea that you're going to send out some just form interrogatories that fit every case, uh, is you know, if that's going to work, uh, I think that's... Uh, I don't think it's completely wrong because, you know, form interrogatories can be applied and used well, especially uh, interrogatories uh, that have already passed muster from courts, for instance. You know, you want to make sure that you don't think that you're going to, you have to create a new wheel to figure out who the witnesses are and ask just a very, just a very vanilla question, like, who are the witnesses to this incident? I mean, that's, that's interrogatory you probably should be asking. Um, but to just send out a whole set of uh, form interrogatories and requests for production and hope that you'll get back something really good is um, an unreasonable expectation. And I think that that's something that's taken me a long time to learn because I almost used to feel like if I had... 30 interrogatories that I should use. I should start with the form and then make sure I got to 30 at least. Even if I knew that some of them weren't relevant, I still felt that like urge to send them all out or follow the form. And so I think sometimes, especially setting up your case for later where you may be in front of a judge, less can be a lot more with interrogatories. Yeah. Uh, you know, you're going to be damned if you do and damned if you don't. Uh, opposing counsel... Um, is going to point out the fact that you asked 30 or and if they can, and if they can find a way to break your 30 up into 60 through the subparts, they're going to do it. And they're going to do that in order to tell the court that um, you are violating the rules and proportionality and that you're on this giant fi fishing expedition. There's no doubt you're going to catch that objection on the most um, 
astute lawyers and maybe not even most astute lawyers. I mean, that's an easy one. Uh, you, I would hope that once you're in the written discovery phase, you know a little bit more about your case and you have a sense of where the liability, you know, coming from a plaintiff's point of view where, where um, you have the burden of proof, um, you have to hone in on whether the liability or the damage issue that's going to uh, ultimately appeal to the court. Because you want, you want the court to know as soon as they can that you got a case that has this showing liability on the part of the opposing party uh, and, and damages. You want that to get out quick. And so um, focusing your case on where the, the issues of liability uh, exist is much more likely to actually result in good discovery responses. And it's going to help you in front of the court when you're trying to argue the motion and justify mm -hmm. the reason why you asked the written discovery request to begin with. Well, and one thing that I've seen a lot lately, and I don't normally object to things, but sometimes they're so egregious, you almost have to. And I've been getting this one in certain from certain carriers and certain defense attorneys and PI cases, but it's just a great example, in my mind, of a bad interrogatory. And it goes something along the lines of like this um, to your client. Please identify and explain every single injury you have had in your lifetime, whether you sought medical attention or not. Identify it by the date that it occurred, the exact injuries that occurred, any medical treatment that you received, which doctors provided it, and the dates of those services. And I mean, that's an example of a terrible question. But the things that make that the question terrible can slip into even good questions. How do you avoid the trap of making something overly broad or, you know, getting too many subparts in there? What's kind of the process you go through to craft a good interrogatory? That's a good question. Sometimes when I know what I'm looking for, I know the answer I want, I try to back myself out of that and literally um, find a way to ask one subject questions right, uh, in order to lead us to that conclusion. Um, it, it sounds overly simplified, but I try to role play through the, the event, for instance, if that's what you're trying to figure out and think, well, what is going on? In, let's say you're trying to figure out a fact and, uh, you know, what color ball the kid was bouncing. Was it a red ball or a blue ball? Um, <laughs> <laughs> Some things are funny no matter how old you are. Um, but the point is, is that, you know, you want to, you got to find a way to ask the question and ask that question um, in a way that doesn't allow the other side a way out. Uh, and that's very tricky. I mean, that's really the art of trying cases is finding the question that the opposing party can't wiggle out of. And sometimes it's, learning your case better, discovering the story of your case, spending time with your client, sometimes maybe trying to run through the facts and details uh, of the occurrence. Um, other times, it could be focus groups. And I think the word focus group can seem more complex than it is. Uh, sometimes it's just simply asking people who, uh, I, I prefer non-lawyers, because I think that they think more rationally than we do as lawyers. And, and, and just asking them questions and running them through a scenario and saying, hey, I've got this issue. Tell me about that. And ask them what they think and what things come to mind. I'll give you a perfect example. Uh, I decided to broaden my horizons uh, this year and do a book club. And so it's through the Western Wyoming Community College. Uh, and we uh, advertised the book club to read Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life, An Antidote to Chaos, a book I read and I thought was pretty meaningful. And I was really uh, looking to uh, read it in a, a group fashion with people and hear what other people had to say about these uh, different rules and such in this book. Well, the other day I was sitting with Caden and we were going over this potential case 
And I knew that it, we were on spring break, so a couple of people weren't going to be at the book club. And I just made a command decision. I said, let's go talk to my book club and see if they want to talk about this case for a few minutes. And it was magical. We didn't have any, we didn't care about what their political beliefs were, if they're male or female and hadn't paid them $20 and given them a cookie or anything like that. We just sat down and talked with people who were part of my book club, who were two uh, just normal people off the street. And the amount of information that came from them was mind-blowing. So I tie that back into the interrogatory portion. Uh, when, I, when you sit and discuss if issues with people, you find the questions that ultimately, at least you hope, ultimately a jury's going to want to know the answers to. So that starts the template of your discovery. I think that's a fantastic idea. I mean, just to get, because how do you, it's so easy to think you know what a jury wants to know, but until you ask the people who might be a juror, you have no idea. You're just speculating. Absolutely. I mean, I don't think, in fact, I don't want to know lawyers' opinions about my cases. <laughs> I mean, nothing against you because you and I have spent plenty of time on the phone talking back and forth fact scenarios and such on cases we work together and cases we haven't. But I want to hear what um, regular people think. Well, here's one thing that I've kind of only recently realized in my practice, but I found that sometimes I come up with some really great interrogatories and what I realized recently is the last thing on earth I want is the other lawyer to answer them. So I have to exercise that patience and file that away from the deposition or wait for the deposition to get that question in. Even though it's so great, I'm so happy I thought of it. I really want to put it into the interrogatories. Do you go through that process too to call some of those questions and save them for later? Yeah, Justin, you, you hit on something that I hadn't been able to put words to, and that is the act of writing, sitting down and writing interrogatories or requests for production of documents. That should not be an act where you just say, I'm going to write 30 interrogatories and be done with it and see if I can just slam 30 home. It really should be more of a process of writing and and, and you can format them or do whatever works for you, whether it's handwriting or typing, but you're absolutely correct. Your process of writing interrogatory sh should be more uh, of a discovery plan type process uh, that should result in you forming your deposition plan. And if you don't use restraint, and you just put all your interrogatories uh, down on paper, then uh, you're going to get what you asked for. You're going to notify opposing counsel of the issue that you think is important, and then you're going to give them time to, frankly, craft an answer to the issue that you think is um, most important. So that gets down to um, its absolute use of restraint because you have to take advantage of spontaneity. Uh, and um, opposing counsel, it, you know, especially if opposing counsel's thorough, like we expect them to be, we want them to be good lawyers. They're going to sit down and think about that and think through what you're asking and, and, and you know, come up with the best answer. Um, you, you might be shooting yourself in the foot. You should exercise restraint put that in your back pocket and um, decide that that particular question or that particular issue should be withheld for deposition and maybe should be withheld for trial. I mean, that's the ultimate form of restraint is being able to uh, figure out the answers to questions without ask, necessarily asking all of them in the discovery phase. And that is definitely one of the the hardest balancing acts that I find too is because often if you do ask that question in the discovery phrase, you can create more leverage or settlement, but you have definitely taken away that, that ace uh, up your sleeve for trial, which it's always nice to have at least one or two of those. 
the trial. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of it comes down to maybe a mindset as well, because um, the one thing I have to think about continuously as I'm litigating a case is whose case am I litigating? Is it mine or my client's? Uh, sometimes my client might not want to have to wait for trial for these issues to be out on the table. And I need to keep that in mind as I, as I work through a case. Now, there are some cases that are going to be tried, and you know that they're going to be tried or need to be tried, and then you have to work your strategy uh, accordingly. But um, you, you it, it's a balancing act. You don't want to be too vague as well when, you know, when you're seeking facts. Um, because, you know, there's another approach to that is plead these facts and see if they'll admit them in the answer. You never know. I mean, what one of your most difficult facts may not be your most difficult fact. And if you can um, investigate your case thoroughly enough and maybe find documents and gather um, records and witness testimony or at least uh, witness interviews, you might uh, find that, that that mountain is just a mohill. I think that's great advice. I mean, especially from the plaintiff side, I think the idea, of, at least for me, is to get it all out there because mm -hmm. the burden of proof is ours, so we can't be waiting for someone else to do it. Um, on kind of just a more kind of nuts and bolts approach, one thing that I've also started to do lately, which I definitely also learned from you, is... Uh, always keep a few interrogatories in reserve if you can to follow up after the written discovery and the depots are done just in case you need it. Um, is that part of, uh, is that still part of your practice? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> you know, don't ever be afraid to ask for uh, leave to file additional interrogatories and such, but you know, that adds another layer of difficulty. And so, um, you know, during deposition, uh, more times than not, I find where people, uh, you know, don't remember things magically or don't have time and couldn't go and get a specific um, piece of information. And so I, I want to follow up with written discovery um, for two reasons. First of all, maybe that's something that needs to be put in front of the court's eyes. It's a lot easier to put it in, in a written discovery uh request rather than buried in the pages of a deposition. And the one that I see all the time is, yeah, of course I remember so-and-so and I've got their contact information at home and of course we'll get it to you. And then two weeks later, you don't get it. And right. so it's a, it's a, it seems to be a really easy way to kind of tie up loose ends that when you're trying to wrap up discovery and get everything you need for your case. Absolutely. Um, and you know, uh, there's, there's been some value, I, I think, that's worth mentioning is you know, when you're dealing with other witnesses and such, um, the use of uh, an investigator is, is really important. And I think it can be cost-effective uh, for you um, in the long run, even though it seems like you have to pay out money to those people to do it. Um, it can be really cost-effective because that's what those people do is run, skip traces and such uh, to find out where people are at. But it also, um, I think, adds to uh, your uh, being thorough in, in making sure that you have another person that's working the case with you. Um, it's, it's a hard thing to find, though. I, I think that that is fantastic advice, and it's probably something that we could learn a lot from the defense side of the bar on, is they always make sure and get sufficient information to run a background and check on our clients, and they always do, and stuff turns up, and it hurts our cases, and if we had the same diligence on our side, I'm sure we'd find information that helps our cases. Well, you know, and, and, and maybe even more so, helping or hurting, I guess, is uh, within the eye of the beholder. Um I want to find out the bad things about my case early. Uh, there's, 
there's facts that are uh, surmountable and facts that are insurmountable. But I'd like to f- have the opportunity to make a decision whether they're one or the other before trial. Much better to find out the bad before you're $16,000 into experts and three quarters of the way to a lawsuit. Yeah. And um, there is a lot of value into investigating your client. Um, it seems probably something that uh, would be maybe feel like a betrayal. But if your client doesn't reveal that piece of information to you, then they've probably betrayed you to begin with. Um, I, I make uh, an effort to um, be very thorough with my clients and in interviewing them and, and documenting and, you know, having a checklist of things I ask that reason because there are certain things that are, are uncomfortable uh, but need to be asked. In the days of social media, um, it's amazing how um, something they posted or was posted about them, whether it's in video or word or pictorial format, that could be very damaging to their car wreck case yet had nothing to do with her car wreck i think that that is just fantastic advice and we should all be following it and kind of like to segue from that to talking about document requests a tool that i've found to be just incredibly powerful because they're not limited um, but you need to limit yourself um, so that you don't um, create bad requests and i'd like to talk to you about getting what you need um, without asking for too much well, I think it goes back to the initial thought about investigating your case and, and trying to at least, if you can't identify the, the specific document, maybe you can identify the category of document. And if you, you read the rule, and I think the rule's uh, underread sometimes. Vastly. Yeah, because it doesn't say identify the specific document. It says, you know, categories of documents that you need. And so you need to have a mindset that's in line with the rule. Uh, because I've seen opposing counsel say, well, judge, you know, they were they asked for this one specific document, uh, and uh, that's not it, you know, because they were interchanging the word um, like a, a Xerox machine as for a copy machine, uh, you know, and it's just, oh, you know, you can play word games. And say, well, they didn't ask for the, you know, X, Y, Z document. They asked for the X, Y, Q document. X, Y, Z document doesn't exist. Well, I mean, then if you run the other side, you're, you're overly broad in saying, give us all your business records. You know, y- you, you have to um, try to narrow your request. And it's, it's a balancing act. It's difficult. It's hard. But you have to hone in. You know, another thing that um, I find and I have desires to do, and I, I don't always do, but, you know, whether it's a, a business um, that you're looking into, let's say, um, a lot of times there's former employees out and about. The bigger the business, the more former employees there are out there. And it's uh, been compelling a compelling idea for me to go and, you know, find those employees, whether you go through LinkedIn or Facebook or whatever, and, you know, find a former employee who worked in the, um, you know, the, the grooming department at uh, PetSmart or something, you know, and see what the procedures were, see what they actually did there, if there's an issue there, for instance. And, uh, you know, have kind of an inside knowledge about um, their policies and procedures and practices before you even ask the first interrogatory. Now you can't do that obviously in these every workers' compensation case, but when you have a you know a big tort claim, a lot of the uh, um, a lot of what goes on is based on the culture of that particular organization, and if you can't catch on to that culture quick enough, then you you might miss out on 
really good discovery. And so over the years, you've had the chance to take a fair number of discovery battles all the way to a motion to compel and get a ruling back from the judge. Can you give our listeners kind of some red flag words and requests when they're asking for documents that will just automatically send up the court's radar um, that the request is overly broad or that it's unreasonable in its scope? I don't know if there's a perfect red, red flag, but when someone makes this cut and paste response to your written interrogatory of, like you said, overly broad, uh, you know, beyond the scope, scope of discovery and all these sorts of things. And there's not actually any substantive uh, support for what they're saying. It's, it's an improper objection to begin with. So you need to be, um, first of all, crafting well-written interrogatories and requests. And don't be afraid to ask another lawyer, even another lawyer in your office. Uh, I mean, a lawyer that's not in your office, somewhere else, because you know there, there's other lawyers willing to help and look at it and give you their armchair advice. But you have to be as equally uh, educated about the objections and the form of the objection. And if it's uh, an objection that can be properly asserted uh, without facts um, by stating it's overly broad and such, you have an obligation to show why it's overly broad. Um, I think um, being familiar with Rule 26 is um, something that's not stressed enough uh, about uh, the discovery phase that it's supposed to be broad uh, and um, it's not seeking evidence that's admissible. Um, there is evidence that might might turn out not to be admissible, but the thing is, is uh, we don't know that unless, <laughs> unless we can see it ourselves. Don't take opposing counsel's word for it because they'll tell you it's not admissible. But if you can't look at it, then who's to know otherwise? I tell opposing counsel many times, I go, you're, you're not allowed to rule on your own objections. That's priceless. Because, I mean, and don't give up. Um, don't back off, especially if you know it's well-written and um, you know that their objection is improper. Don't give up. And so when you're crafting those requests for production, are you already anticipating the objections that you will likely get and how you're going to deal with them and thinking about that as you craft the question. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you want to, you want to try to, it's just like, uh, preparing for trial and you don't want to ask bad questions because you won't even be able to present your evidence. You should be thinking the same way when you're crafting your written discovery requests. And what I've noticed is that it, it almost seems like every discovery battle becomes a two-way battle because they will ask some bad questions that you will object to. And then before you know it, you both have motions to compel. And it seems to me like as a starting point, whoever asks the best questions first has the most likely chance of winning that battle. Absolutely. Because the court has a, a different view about what's going on than we do, in my opinion. I think, first of all, the court's looking and seeing, looking at the merits of the case. I think they're saying, does this appear to be a bona fide dispute? You know, does plaintiff, does plaintiff have a case? Ah, I think judges are looking at cases right off the bat um, and saying. I agree 100%. Yeah. And um, then they, so if you have this case that, you know, is, one of those principal, we're, we're filing it on principal rather than on like harms and losses. Um, you need to take that into account when you're uh, engaging in your discovery battle. Uh, and then the next thing the court's uh, looking at is saying, who's being reasonable about this? And you want to be the most reasonable person in the room 
And it is so much easier said right here to you than done. I agree completely. And that actually kind of segues into the next uh, thing I want to talk about. And I just got a little anecdote before we go on. But years ago, they did a study of children and they they wanted to test their ability to, to delay gratification. And so they would give um, the child a, a marshmallow in a room and then they would tell them if they waited five minutes, they could get another marshmallow. And then they left the kid in there by themselves. And the children who could wait for the extra marshmallow, um, they followed these kids for years. Um, almost universally across the board were more successful, higher education, better jobs, happier relationships. The children who couldn't wait, uh, more impulsive, more likely to quit, more likely to not get jobs. And I think one of the keys to doing a good job with discovery is the patience and then the ability to hold back and delay that gratification for the end result. And, you know, it begins with asking good questions, limiting your questions. Um, and then the next step is once you get back a bunch of ridiculous objections, the first thing you have to do is try and meet and confer typically over the phone with the opposing counsel. I mean, how do you look at that? Do you look at that as a real chance to change someone's mind? Or are you seeing that as, uh, you know, just something perfunctory? Or is it just purely a case by case based on opposing counsel for you? I think that the uh, the personalities inevitably will play into how you approach uh, a, a case um, and how you approach the meet and confer. Uh, but I've always found that when lawyers don't talk, the worst results uh, come out. Um, no matter who um, is on the other side, there there needs to be efforts by both sides to talk. That's why they have lawyers, and that's why these people have lawyers involved to begin with. Especially if you look at a divorce case or something. I mean, thank heavens they have lawyers because they can't get along and they don't want to be married anymore. And um, if they could just sit down and work things out, divorce lawyers would be totally out of work. But they have to hire lawyers because most of the times things have gone wrong. And so they need their lawyers to act like professionals and talk and, and figure out these different things. The same should be true in any litigation. You know, I found sometimes, like I'm in Star Valley, and uh, when I deal with the Teton County Attorney's Office, great guys, but I show up. I just go show up at their office because I can't get them on the phone, no matter how hard I try. And it doesn't, when I do get them on the phone, it doesn't seem like they're able to give me any substantive type discussions about whatever issue it is. That's in the criminal context. Uh, in the civil context, you know, we, we are um, all over the state and all over the country at times. And sometimes we just have to pick up the phone. And, uh, you know, sometimes you just have to make an appointment with them literally get on their calendar and ask them for an appointment. But when I get on the phone um, with other lawyers, uh, and a lot of times I find that I'm still the younger guy in the room, that I try to look at it like a student and say, well, where have I gone? What's wrong with this question? And I ask them to tell me. Because first of all, they might tell me. I've met opposing counsel. I mean, most of them are good lawyers and some of them really know the law well and they'll tell me exactly what's wrong with the interrogatory for instance and I go well, gosh I learned something today but then the next thing is is then you say well you know tell me how your objection is legitimate and maybe that means that you haven't started with a phone call maybe that means you started with a letter and you've sent them a letter and you've outlined um, their objection and then you've outlined the case law that says that, yeah, that's not an appropriate objection. Um, and you, you do that and try to do that in the least aggressive way you can. Uh, but then you get on the phone and you say, help me hash this out and understand. Uh, because, you know, ultimately, 
Judges are no different than opposing counsel. They're just lawyers. And if, if they can't explain themselves to you, what you're entitled to their response before a hearing, because that would be wasting the court's time if they don't give you a response. Um, you're entitled to a response. And then, uh, you know, hopefully, if you have someone who's reasonable and knows how it's going to turn out, then then hopefully you can get past that and get a get an answer that works. But but the other thing is is uh, you know uh, continue to insist that that answer be an- that answer be provided under oath if it's an interrogatory, and you know continue to insist that it be documented um, you know with a with a, an amended response for instance. Don't uh, allow these late trickling in facts not to follow the form. I like that a lot. And I also like the idea of the conversation and, you know, the open exchange of ideas. And one thing that I found that I really appreciate recently, especially since more and more discovery disputes, at least, and I'm talking in the federal context, at least get a phone call from a judge. And I really like the federal setup where you have to meet and confer but then before a motion is filed, you know you're going to have to have a brief um, hearing with the judge, and he's, he or she is not going to make a binding decision, but they're going to give you a pretty darn good idea of where they stand. And what I found is in those meet and confers, when you know that within a day or maybe less, you may be talking to the judge in 20 minutes, a lot of concessions seem to be made, like maybe I don't need to have such a hard line on that, or maybe I can give a little. And, and that whole process and the imminent, you know, hearing that's going to occur with the judge seems to really get it down to the heart of the issues, the truly important things. And I didn't know if you've had similar experiences with that. Yeah, I, I totally have had similar experiences. And, you know, it comes to mind, uh, Judge Rankin, who uh, is, is our current chief uh, magistrate judge, he um, he knows Rule 26 well. And, you know, you, you really come to appreciate um, the intricacies of the rule and the case law behind the rule, uh, because he's he's enforcing it every day, and um, it's not new. I, I I assume some of these battles, but um, concessions can be made before the court comes on the line. But if you're if you're confident about your case, don't back down. Um, but but on the other hand, hope that you've crafted your discovery plan well enough to where in those last 20 minutes, you're not second guessing what you've done. <laughs> you have got to have a um, very broad view of the case right from the get go. Uh, and it's not always possible. We're not um, people that sit with a crystal ball. I mean, there's a lawsuit for a reason. And that's because people have differing opinions about what happened and the facts uh, most of the time unless someone's just blatantly being uh, obstructionist and lying you know there's there's two or maybe more plausible ways about how this little fact scenario went down and you're hoping that your fact scenario is the one that actually occurred or at least the one you can prove Um, but don't make it you know hope that in those 20 minutes while you're waiting for the court that You've got a good reason to be there. And then uh, kind of going back to the state court situation, you know, this letter might actually get sent uh, before or after the uh, verbal meet and confer, depending on uh, the, the particular lawyer's style. But you'd, generally before you file a motion to compel, you need to send the other lawyer written notice. And the thing that impressed me so much the first time we worked together was that you basically sent, you laid all your cards on the table and your written notice to opposing counsel just really needed to be cut and pasted um, to be turned into the motion to, to compel. I mean, you didn't just tell them it was inappropriate or anything. I mean, you had case law, you laid everything out. And I just, I would love to know how you learned to do that and how much work you plan on putting into that and just kind of give us the overall um, understanding of why you do it that way. Well, I'm pretty sure it wasn't my original thought. <laughs> I probably learned it from someone else. Uh, but, you know, the, the frame of mind I had when I'm writing this 
letter to whether it's a meet and conferral type letter of notice of motion compeller, however you want to style the letter. Um, ultimately, I want to appeal to their better judgment, the opposing counsels, because I really just want the discovery. Um, I, you know, I like judges and going and seeing them, but um, I don't need to, not on a discovery dispute. Uh, and I think the, the worst thing I'd want to have happen is have a opposing counsel go, uh, see my motion and see this uh, rule of law for the first time and go, oh, you got me. And and then, you know, concede the motion, it, you know, uh, so I, I, and I want to be correct in my approach. So I thought, well, geez, instead of drafting the motion, why don't you just put the case law and everything you have in the letter? And then when you have to go file the motion, it's not like the first time that they've seen the law that tells them that that's an inappropriate objection. They've seen it three times now. And uh, it's no surprise to anyone. And the court can then, you know, I, I look at the judge up on the bench going, okay, Mr. So-and-so, uh, he told you about this on March 15th. And then April 15th, he wrote the letter. And, you know, May 15th, he filed this motion. And you, you the, the law hasn't changed. It's still... The law, you never came up with anything new. You never did anything to uh, object to his assertions of law. Um, you know, what are they going to say? Because if, if, if that's the first time when they're in front of the court at a hearing to assert um, some rule of law, I think they lose <laughs> for just not saying something earlier and they look kind of foolish. You've kind of given them every opportunity to state their case along the way and let the judge know that you did everything possible for it. You took up their time. Yeah, and I'm also letting the court know that, like, this is not a battle that that I want to be engaged in. I'm not doing this for the, the purposes of fighting or, um, you know, getting under opposing counsel's skin. I just want, I just want my discovery. And if I'm wrong... I'm, I've, I've had opposing counsel who have said, hey, by the way, and told me a case or something, let's say, literally. Um, I had opposing counsel notify me of this particular case, and it saved me from filing a lawsuit. And wow. I was like, thank you, because, um, I mean, how stupid would I have looked in front of the court when I file something that's already been dealt with? and that was squarely against me, um, that's the result of good lawyering. And on the other hand, it does me no benefit to make opposing counsel look stupid for stupid sake. I just don't think that the profession benefits or the, the, the process. This is, you know, ultimately the courts of law are dispute resolution uh, centers. And if we got rid of judges and we got rid of lawyers tomorrow, we would just come back up with some type of dispute resolution uh, uh, service or, 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 or body of people that are there to resolve disputes. I mean, because that's, it's inherent in human, <laughs> human kind is that we're going to disagree about things and have disputes. So um, it, my job is to try to make it run as efficiently as possible. And, and I hope I'm ultimately doing that. And I, th I think you are, and that actually really kind of made me laugh because before I had, had the chance to kind of have you teach me through example on how to conduct discovery, I used to wish that instead of having discovery motions and stuff that we would just have like the giant Q-tips that the Marines have. And instead of going in front of the judge, you would just go against opposing counsel and whoever was left standing after the giant Q-tip <laughs> battle royale, they would get the discovery because I just felt like they were so stupid and incomprehensible at times and so i mean i love the idea of really just trying to show opposing counsel and, and really winning them with knowledge and good citations and, and case law yeah i mean i've definitely been one on the on the on the side of the argument that made no sense i know i mean and i'm grateful to those people for uh saving me um the embarrassment of having um you know, more notoriety in my uh, misdeed. Um, let's, you know, 
there's beating each other with Q-tips. I mean, that's exactly why the court system exists is so people aren't beating each other with Q-tips or having dueling guns in the street. Yeah, and I'm, I'm still grateful. I mean, it was back when the economic crisis hit and there was all kinds of foreclosures going on in Jackson. I was defending a lot of them. And, you know, I just had a forum that I had, you know, a dozen uh, affirmative defenses on. And I got a letter from Jim Belcher one time explaining to me with case law sites why seven of them were complete BS. And so, I mean, I checked out the case law and he was right. And I was happy to drop him after that because I wasn't bringing a meritorious defense for my clients. But, I mean, I was grateful for being told that I was wrong. I mean, Yeah, and it's the practice of law. I think, um, you know, there's nothing better in my mind and in my uh, practice is to have a good fair fight where everybody knows the, you know, the, the, the facts and the testimony. And, um, it's just a matter of, uh, who believes who, um, you know, the, the rules of discovery, uh, were, were put in place to prevent gotcha type litigation. But I, I, I can understand why people, you know, have wanted to go and duke it out because maybe they feel like they're being abused by opposing counsel or whatever. Um, you know, there's nothing better than a than a an attorney who is uh, well versed in the law, who can, even from opposing counsel's point of view, um, be. Uh, a significant um, player in resolving that case. And, and sometimes that means bringing opposing counsel, their opponent, along with them to see that, that you know, the, the law reads one way rather than the other. Um, you know, because I, I think it's really, it's, it's easy when you see a really young lawyer maybe on the other side and go, Oh man, I, you know, watch this, but who looks like the fool at the end of the day? Absolutely. And why put your client through the heartache of maybe drawing something out for a hearing when it could be resolved with a simple explanation? And there's nothing worse for me to hear, honestly, than a person who feels that they had a, a really bad lawyer or that they got really poor representation. Because I know uh, that I can't be anywhere and everywhere and defend every case or prosecute every case, and neither can you. And it only hurts my profession and what I've uh, spent, you know, 18 plus years uh, crafting to, to make better. And, um, if opposing counsel could have uh, helped that other lawyer from this big train wreck, it, it would does everybody a lot better. Absolutely. And just to shift gears one last time, I want to kind of get into the motion to compel. Um, and one of the things being from a small state is we don't always have a huge body of case law. And oftentimes you have really specific questions or objections you're dealing with in discovery. So I was hoping you could tell our listeners about some of the good sources for case law on discovery questions, where you and where you, where and how you go about finding that. Well, good question. Uh, you know, our uh, rules of civil procedure in Wyoming are patterned after the federal rules. And the federal rules um, are best explained and and highlighted in the federal rules, FRD, Federal Rules Decisions, I think it is. That's a particular reporter that uh, summarizes decisions, not summarizes, actually um, publishes decisions uh, based on rulings on the rules of evidence and the rules of civil procedure throughout the country. And I found that uh, they're very persuasive in um, explaining the rules to state court judges, for instance, on issues that we don't have case law on. 
Um, I also am a big proponent of using the local rules, the Wyoming U.S. District Court local rules, because there are local rules that are more detailed on certain issues. And I've never found a state court judge who didn't um, put weight on counsel's uh, attempts to follow the local rules in the federal court when prosecuting a state court case. Um, I think that um, you should, you know, if every lawyer uh, pursued uh, their state court cases like they pursue their federal court cases, you would be on the money 99% of the time. And um, the one time you're off, you're going to go make some case law. <laughs> but I think if you just stick to that. And also, finally, um, go look and, and, and use PACER and use other sites. and Find out, for instance, what Judge Rankin said on these issues before. Um, make friends with his clerks. Make friends with his former clerks um, or Judge Carmen or uh, the rest of the federal bench. Don't be afraid to go to your own local district court and make friends with the court clerk and find out if there's been any discovery uh, issues and fights that have come through on your uh, district judge. I mean, what better piece of authority to have than uh, judge so-and-so's order from six months ago on a similar case? These objections are not new. I mean, uh, you know, there are, there are certain people that are frequent flyers in um, posing objections that are improper. Opposing counsel knows they're improper 99% of the time anyway. Um, what better thing to do than to, to say, you know, let's say Judge Calacathis, because, you know, he's not on the bench anymore, but say, you know, Judge, you ruled about this six months ago or a year ago or even four years ago. I don't imagine your opinions changed much. You don't necessarily say it that, but if you attach that as an exhibit to your motion, or better yet, your, your letter before you get there, I mean, you disarm the other side. And that is absolutely fantastic advice. And it's advice that I have to remind myself of because probably 80% of the body of law in Wyoming on discovery is not going to show up in any Pacific reporter or federal reporter. It's, it's only out there in these cases that don't get appealed that are district court decisions or magistrate judge rulings in the federal court. So, I mean, that is just a fantastic practice tip right there. And I think that, you know, there's, you know, maybe we could, we could forge some new ground, Justin, I think maybe on your CLE podcast, I mean, what would be the harm in you either um, contacting a sitting district judge or some of our newly retired judges like uh, Judge Waldrop or Judge Donnell or Judge Young's going to be retired really quickly and say, I'd like to hear about discovery disputes and your thoughts about them. And do you have any orders that you've issued on those? Because I mean, think about the value of that where, cause I, I mean, it would be just great to take some of the, some of this work and, and squelch some of these needless fights that are occurring. Boy, and, you know, that is the key word is, is so often they are needless and just having the right information out there would alleviate so much heartache. I think that's a fantastic idea and definitely want to be looking into pursuing. Yeah. Um, you know, and recently I actually, we called Judge Donnell up and I said, uh, you know, hey, here's a fact scenario that we have going through. And what do you think? Now, Judge Donnell's a practicing attorney and he's has a mediating mediation practice, um, and uh, I want to be mindful and respectful of his time because uh, it's valuable. Um, but uh, I found that, um, oh, and Judge Brooks, you know, he listed something in the Wyoming lawyer the other day that said that he's mediating. You know, these these folks are not uh, by any means uh, washed up. <laughs> not <laughs> at all. You know, they just hit the 70-year-old mark, or I don't know if all of them reach 70. They don't look really old. Um, but you know, these, these, um, people are, are, are a wealth of information that we should continue to use because ultimately I think they're focused on the same things we're focused on. And that is upholding the rule of law 
and and seeing that justice is done for the citizens of the state of Wyoming or wherever we're practicing. I couldn't agree more. And uh, amazingly, an hour has uh, slipped by already. So I just want to say thank you very much for being here. And I, I really appreciate it. You bet. Um, I'd love to be back anytime. And uh, of course, we'll probably talk on the phone real soon. That sounds great. All right. Thanks. Thanks.